Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a perfect. Oh, mercy. Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the Masson newsroom, it is the Masson All Access Podcast. Paul Mancano, Brendan Mortensen here with you as always. Bobby Blanco behind the sticks running the podcast. Brendan, we got to start first and foremost with the question on everybody's mind. Who should replace Ellen? That, that's a fantastic question. Better yet, which Oriole should replace Ellen? See, my take was Anthony Santander. If you looked at his Instagram Q&A from the other day, it was the most wholesome content I've ever seen. I, so I'm going to go with Anthony Santander. I see your Santander. I raise you a Hans or Alberto. Because Alberto he does the same thing. He does yep. Instagram Q&As. They're excellent. And that smile can light up a room. It can. It can light up any TV Can studio. they co-host? It's a good question. Honestly, you probably will need two of them to replace the personality that is Ellen. Right. So, yeah, maybe they switch off. You know, maybe maybe if Santander's in the outfield one day, they're giving Alberto the day off in the infield, he can to host, host yeah. the show. Yeah. I mean, Hyde's got to be on board with this. Right. Um, well, he as would, any manager would. He would be the producer of the show, most likely. That's that's double duty. That's, that's a little tough. Yeah. I mean, I, I would trust him to run it well. Right. But that's got to be an off-season activity. You, know? you would think. You would think. Yeah. Well, uh, we're going to talk about some baseball at some point. We're going to have Steve Molesky of MassInSports.com on later on in the podcast to discuss how the Orioles are running their alternate site and buoy, the kind of players that are there. Will we see Ryan Mountcastle come up from buoy? How is Keegan Aiken going to look when he makes his Major League debut? All that good stuff. But we also got to talk about the team on the Major League field as well because these Orioles are out to a, I say hot start, but hot in quotation marks, just because hotter than expected. Seven and seven is not exactly a world-beating record, but they've already beaten some good teams. Took two or three from the Red Sox opening weekend. Uh, they swept the Rays. We're ignoring that series against the Marlins, uh, and then what series against the and Marlins? And then they basically, yeah, and then they basically swept uh, the Nationals. Still waiting to like finish ninety percent yeah. swept the Nationals. Still waiting to finish a postponed game for some absurd reason. So uh, at this point, they have far out. out uh, you know, uh, exceeded. There, there it go. is. Yeah. Uh, expectations at this point um, that we had for them, that outsiders had for them, probably that people in the front office had for them. Uh, and it is pretty impressive so far. Yeah. I, I think people get caught up a lot of times too when you look at these series and you have the idea in the back of your head already that it's the Baltimore Orioles. You. You look at those sweeps a little different. I'm saying sweeps. The Orioles basically swept the Nationals. Still have to finish up the game on Friday. But if you are a contending team, if you're a team that's going into the playoffs and you sweep the Rays and you sweep the defending national champions, that's two really good series. But then if you're the Orioles, you're kind of looking at it, and I think a lot of people are saying maybe it's fluky, maybe it's something like that. They look at it a little differently because it's the Baltimore Orioles and the expectations for this team were not high. But that's still really uh, two really good series. Well, and I think in the course of a 162-game season, a start like this for a rebuilding team 
can be seen as, well, that's a nice story. But it's going to ultimately look like a statistical anomaly in the long run. Remember last year when the Orioles started by taking two of three from the Yankees in their opening weekend series at Yankee Stadium, uh, I think they took two of three or at least split a series against the Red Sox and Fenway. Like, they, they looked good to start the season. And then, of course, you know, they ended up losing 108 games because over the course of a long season like that, hot starts fall apart. But in a 60-game season, they've already played what's, you know, 14 times 2.7. So they are out to basically have had a first month of the season where they've gone 500. Right. It's a quarter of this season. Yeah. Which is statistically not insignificant. Right. And especially in a year where you have 16 playoff teams. So the top two teams in every division make the playoffs. And then you consider, well, they already beat some, uh, you know, AL East foes, the teams that they would have to jump in order to make the playoffs. And those teams already don't look great. The Red Sox don't look great. The, the Blue Jays are out to a 5-8 and eight start. The Rays are just one game above 500. And all of this combines to say that this is not something that we can just brush aside. This is a legitimate hot start so far. And when we were doing the podcast, kind of looking at the Orioles schedule for the upcoming season, I was very much of the opinion that if the Orioles were going to win a good amount of baseball games this year, you have to take care of business against teams like the Marlins, the Mets, you know, kind of the lower tier teams that you're going to be playing in the AL East and NL East. And then you have to steal a few games from teams like the Rays and Nationals. Now they've swept the Rays and Nationals kind of swept the Nationals, and you don't take advantage against the Marlins. So basically, all of our expectations for <laughs> how the Orioles were going to do this season have been completely flipped on their head. Yeah, the only one that really has made sense is that the Yankees are still right. crushing them. Right. But, I mean, that is to, you know, the Yankees are not skipping a beat. They are clearly still probably the best team in the American League. The Orioles are never going to overtake them for that top seed in the, in the American League East. And hope, they're just hoping to win one game against them this year just because to end that streak that is now to like 18 straight losses against them. So, you know, that that those games are not automatic losses, but they're not going to do well against the Yankees that this year. That much is clear. But it's these middle-tier teams that you mentioned. And, you know, the Orioles are not the only team that is rebuilding that is having a surprising start. I mean, look at the Marlins. Look at the team that they just played that is, what, 7-3 and three now? and is uh, at the top or near the top of the NL East. Um, you know, the, the Detroit Tigers, who were the worst team in baseball, worse than the Orioles last year, are above 500 at this point. So this is something that is not unique to the Orioles as well. It's just the, all the factors in play. The fact that it is a shortened season, that these guys are, you know, some teams have played all their games at home. Some teams have played all their games on the road. Some teams have had a week off. Some haven't. Some, some te teams just haven't played games. Yeah, some teams <laughs> are losing their best players for three days at a time for no reason. Like, well, for a reason, but an unknown reason. So it is such a strange season. So to for them, to, the Orioles so far, to take advantage of that um, is, is, I guess it should be slightly less surprising than we are making it, I guess. But also you have to give them credit for taking advantage of these strange circumstances. Right, and when you look at other teams in the league, too, I think it's pretty safe to say that the Orioles have not been hit hard in comparison. I think they've 
gotten yeah. pretty lucky with how their roster has been able to be constructed, and they really haven't had a lot of curveballs thrown at them. I mean, they've had the series against the Marlins where they had to delay some games and push those off, but they're pretty much right on track. Right. Well, and, and you know, they lose Mancini, obviously, before the season even starts. Right. They you lose knew, their best you knew that was going to happen. You knew that was going to happen. But it feels like every, almost every team around baseball has lost a significant player for at least a period of time. You know, uh, losing, you know, the, the Cardinals are their own case and they're losing everybody. But, you know, they're, the, these teams are losing guys for a, an extended amount of time. I mean, and, and look at the pitchers that have gone down uh, in the first couple weeks of the season. Um, it's, it's been kind of devastating. And, you know, to the, the Dodgers, the best team in baseball, maybe, or best team in the NL, didn't have Walker Bueller to start the season. They had to have a, a rookie, Dustin May, start the season for them. Uh, Michael Waka for the Mets just went down. Marcus Stroman for the Mets just opted out. Syndergaard was already injured for yeah. the Mets. So, so, like, the Orioles are not unique in that they lost one of their best players, too, to start the season. So all these teams are, are kind of on even ground there. And to your point, Brendan, the Orioles so far, I mean, they had the, the positive cases in camp. In summer camp with Dwight Smith Jr. missed some time. Uh, Anthony Santander missed some time before he was able to join the team. Uh, and then Cole Stewart just opted out. So they've, they've, they've had some, but they really have not been hit too hard, especially by, that we know of, by the coronavirus. They have right. not had too many guys go on the injured list for unknown reasons. Juan Soto for the Nationals went on the, you know, just played his first series of the season against the Orioles this past weekend because he went on the... So all of these things are contributing to their hot start. And as weird as the season is, you've got some teams that have been very lucky, some teams that have been very unlucky. The results are still going to matter just the same. Regardless of how hard you are hit, whether you're one of the lucky teams or the unlucky teams... It's still going to play a big factor in what happens at the end of the season, what happens with the playoffs, what happens with the draft, especially. If you get unlucky, maybe that's better for you for a draft position. If you get lucky, maybe it's worse for you for a draft position. The results are still going to make a big difference regardless of how much craziness is going on during the season itself. Well, I think that lends itself to a different topic that... Um, I wanted to talk about today because, I, you know, this is probably something that will get some fans mad at me um, and will probably, uh, but these are kind of, this is a conversation that I think should be had about this team, uh, and it is probably one that they are having internally at some level, and that is at what point does winning this uh, certain number of games affect the rebuild in a negative way and could it have a negative effect on the rebuild we have to look at this rebuild at its true form which is stripping down the team from uh the older veterans you know finding trade value in guys that are not going to be part of this team eventually long term the orioles were not meant to be competitive this season Suddenly, at, at quarter way through the season, they are. We don't know how long this is going to last. But if they keep continuing to win games, could it have a negative effect on the rebuild as a whole? And I think it's an especially fair question to ask right now because we are a quarter of the way through the season, and the Orioles are a half game back of second place in the AL East, which means a half game back of a playoff spot. Right. 
and and the addition of you know you also have the two wildcard teams in every division right or in, in every league as well so you know not they the Orioles could be all they have to do is be one of the top two teams in the American League East or be one of the top what eight teams in essentially in the American League to make up the playoffs so you know the the you look at the key tenets of this rebuild the kind of things that Mike Elias is trying to do here uh, one I think is to uh, take players off the scrap heap that other teams reject and turn them potentially into contributors. We've talked about this a million times, how a Rio Ruiz fits that category, Pedro Severino fits that category, Hansa Alberto, just about everybody on this major league roster at some point fits that category. The second part is drafting and developing premier talents that can eventually lead you to a championship. The uh, you know winning games short term definitely does not affect that. The, uh, the affect the first part of it, but could it affect the second? If they have a worse draft pick and the 2021 MLB draft because they won X number of games in this season, will that negatively affect the rebuild? What do you, what say you, Brendan? Let's get into this. My answer is is more complicated than a yes or no. If you look at some historic rebuilds that have gone really well. Let's just, let's stick with Mike Elias. Let's look at the Astros. The Astros were the worst team in baseball by a mile for consecutive years. That got them the likes of Carlos Correa, like Alex Bregman, who have now led their team to a championship. Say what you will about the Astros, but one way or another, they led their team to a World Series. They were a good team regardless. A very good team. Yeah. Regardless, they only got all of those guys because they lost a ton of baseball games. However, you also look at the Astros roster and you have to acknowledge that they found guys who became really good players for them and contributed to those World Series victories. Guys like Dallas Keuchel and Jose Altuve. Those were two of the key central pieces to those World Series runs. My thought on whether or not this hurts the rebuild is a little bit of yes and a little bit of no. Obviously, it's important for the Orioles to get high draft picks because when you get high draft picks, you have, you would think, a better chance of getting a better player. But I don't think that you can have quality pieces for the future at the major league level right now and get the number one overall pick. I think those two things are mutually exclusive. While I don't, it, it's not 100% the case, you can still have the worst record in baseball with having some of those pieces. I think if you're the Orioles, you will live with having a pick somewhere in the 3 to 10 range and have guys like Anthony Santander, like Rio Ruiz, like Renato Nunez. I don't think you can have those guys and still have the worst record in baseball. Right. That's interesting because I think I so what you're saying, do you think that the Orioles got more guys? So you know, anytime they pick up a Ruiz and Alberto, uh Santander, uh although Santander has been on this team for several years. So uh, a Severino, let's say. One of these guys that's kind of on the scrap heap. They the Orioles make more waiver claims it feels like than any other team. Do you think that they hit on too many? Do you think they had a higher percentage than they were expecting to or, or even hoping to? Well, I, I think 
saying that they hit on too many is saying number one pick or bust. Right. It's a bad thing to hit on these guys. Right. Yeah. And and I don't think it is. Right. I think you would rather, at least for me, from looking at this roster, I would rather have those guys and have, you know, the fifth or sixth pick overall than not have any of those guys. And all of a sudden, with those draft picks, you need to hit. Right. Because if you miss on the number one pick, which, you know, in other sports, that would be crazy. Like, you're not going to miss on a number one pick in the NFL or the NBA, more than likely. You are a lot more likely to miss on the number one pick in the MLB draft. I mean, it just going through the years, let's, let's go through and look at some of the, the last drafts. Yeah. Let's look at 2016, Dansby Swanson and Alex Bregman. I'm, I'm sorry, that was 2015. Dansby Swanson was the first overall pick, who is a good player for the Braves. Alex Bregman was the number two overall pick. He's been a fantastic player. You hit on both of those. But also in 2015, Walker Bueller was the 24th overall pick. In 2016, Mickey Moniak, bust. bust. Nick Senzel was the number two overall pick, and he's a good role player right now with potential for the Reds. But then you've also got Kyle Lewis, who was 11th overall in 2016. He is playing lights out for the Mariners right now. And he's one of the reasons that the Mariners might not get the first overall pick because he's a good young piece who is contributing in a big way. 2014, Brady Aiken was the number one overall pick. Bust. Tyler Kolek was the number two overall pick. Bust. Yeah. In 2014, Aaron Nola went seventh overall. Very good pitcher. Right. In 2013, Mark Appel first overall. Bust. Chris Bryant, number two. Obviously, very, very good. So you're not going to hit on those top two picks all the time. But even in 2013, Austin Meadows was the ninth overall pick. Even though it is statistically easier to find a better player with those first two picks, it doesn't mean you're going to all the time. No. And no. if you miss on one of those because, say, you're getting rid of uh, uh, maybe passing on a really good role player that you've got on your team right now, say a, a Hans or Alberto. Say you're Michael Elias and say, I don't want to be winning this many games. Hans or Alberto is playing too well, almost, right? I'm going to get rid of Hans or Alberto to try to get the number one overall pick, to try to get a Kumar Rocker or a Jack Leiter, who are probably 1A, 1B in this year's draft. You don't know that you're going to hit on that number one overall pick. And if you miss and you pass up on keeping a guy like a Hans or Alberto, you are really hurting your team. Right. Well, there, I agree with you to a certain extent. And I, I think that abs, I think no question the MLB draft is more a crapshoot than it is in the NFL and especially in the NBA, right. where you are, you know, you still have busts absolutely in the number one overall pick and the top five picks in those drafts, but not to the level that you do in Major League Baseball, simply because. They're so young. There's so much, so many steps before they get to major league level, all that kind of stuff. But I do think there is a, a benefit to having the first overall pick compared to having the 20th overall pick. Certainly. And, and not even, um, you know, it, absolutely it is when you have an Adley Rutschman, who is the clear number one runaway prospect and was for a year. And at this point, Kumar Rocker is on that level. And Bryce Harper and Steven Strasburg, those guys too. But, like, you, you mentioned, like, some of those guys that, um, you know, were busts with the number one overall pick. Those guys, you know, that, that's when that was not a clear, 
a cut, obvious number one overall pick scenario. However, I would still say that there is an advantage to having that pick even when there isn't a guy there. And for a few reasons. One, because that pick stays the same pretty much throughout the rest of the rounds of the draft. You have the number one over, you know, you do have the competitive balance round picks, essentially. Um, but it's it's not a snake draft. You know, it's not like it in fantasy where it goes one to 30, then 30 to one in the second round. It, you have the number one pick. That means you have, you know, for the Orioles last year or this a uh, couple months ago, they had the number two overall pick. Then they also have the number 38 overall pick because they flip-flop with Detroit at the top of the second round. So you you have an advantage over every team, not just in the first round, but in every round, just about every round subsequently. That's an advantage too. You know, like we, the some of the, the later round gems, you have a higher chance of hitting on that guy in theory if you have the first round in the fourth pick as opposed to the 20th round in the fourth pick, you know? So I think right. that's an added benefit too. Um, and then I, I, I think it's just about percentages. You know, it's, it is still slightly, you know, it is still a crapshoot, but it is still slightly easier to hit on a draft pick when you have a higher position, you know? And, it, and to get, not just to get it an average player, but to get a superstar. The, the chances of you getting a superstar at number one are generally higher than you getting a superstar at number 24. Doesn't mean you can't do it. Doesn't mean you're not going to find a Walker Bueller or a superstar at that level. You just have a higher percentage chance. And I think that's what this rebuild is about, is um, playing the percentages. You know, it's, it's, it's how can we maximize our opportunities to get superior players? And I would rather have, you know, at this point, who knows what's going to happen, but I would rather have Adley Rutschman than whoever was taken 24th or 25th or, or, even, seven, or you know, even 10th in last year's draft because you have a higher chance of getting a premier talent. So I do think there is still some advantage to getting a higher draft pick. Oh, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue that I would rather have the eighth overall pick than the first overall pick. Right. Absolutely, the advantage of having the first overall pick compared to any of the other ones is big. And I think there is a gap between having the number one overall pick and having the number eight overall pick. Yeah. However, if you are consistently getting the worst record in baseball, that means that at the major league level, it's not working. Even if you are, if your goal is to just completely tank, that still means that at the major league level, your team is not where it should be. Right. And that has to mean that there are not a lot of those pieces there that are going to be building blocks in the future. And I'm not saying that a guy like Rio Ruiz is going to be a superstar third baseman that you could maybe get with the first or second overall pick. But the way the Orioles are constructed right now, if you compare guys like Alberto, like Anthony Santander, like Rio Ruiz, with the studs that are hopefully coming up for the Orioles very soon, that you got with those high draft picks that you are hoping are going to be the centerpieces, the Adley Rutschmans, the Heston Kerstads, the Ryan Mountcastles. Those are the guys that you are going to build the lineup around. And right now, the Orioles have pieces that I, I think can carry through the years until you get to an Adley Rutschman, to a Heston Kerstad. 
I think it there's a very good possibility that you could still see Anthony Santander on this Orioles team when right. those guys are called up. And if you don't have those guys, you have to rely completely on your farm system. Yeah. And or trades. Right. Yeah. And regardless, you can make a ton of picks that you think are good picks. The Orioles made six this year that were considered to be good picks. You have to hope that all of those guys really hit. And the odds that all six of the guys that the Orioles drafted this year make it to the majors, very not, low. Very, yeah. very <laughs> low. Like 1%. Yeah. Right. And that's the thing. It, it's it's weird to compare the MLB draft when you have it in your head to other drafts too because like if you draft a guy in the NFL in the fifth round, he's at least going to make the roster more than right. likely. Yeah. But if you draft a guy in Major League Baseball in the third round, there's not even a there's a pretty low percentage chance historically that he's even going to make the majors. Yeah, exactly. Let so, alone be a, a positive contributor. Right. And you know, it, I always think back to that episode of family guy where he's talking about getting the boat or the mystery box oh yeah the draft picks are the mystery box to me you are hoping that some guy that you draft in the fourth round is going to contribute in the way that a Rio Ruiz has a Hanser Alberto has and I think if you have those role players right now at the major league level I would rather win with them see that you have some pieces moving forward and get the fifth overall pick than have no pieces at the major league level and get the first overall pick. Yeah, there is a trade-off here, I think. And, yeah. and that is, I'm sure, what Mike Elias in this front office is considering at this point because a lot of the, you look at the roster currently and all these guys that we just mentioned, they really can't be traded because they're, they're just young enough. Most of these guys are around 26, 27. And in a future podcast, as we get closer to the trade deadline, I do want to talk about any chance that these guys on the current roster do get traded. But the only real trade pieces that they could look at on this team are like the older veteran starters that they have in a Wade LeBlanc, um, you know, in an Alex Cobb, those type guys. They, and you look around the diamond, there's really not too many spots where they could trade somebody and, and you know, in it expect a return that is better than the current player that they're getting that they that they have on their roster but i'm glad you mentioned the sixth round draft because next year's draft is a, all signs point to it probably being about 20 rounds which is the shortest that it can go but we saw last year that it was the shortest that it can go in a five round draft so if it is a 20 round draft though just like it was in a six round draft I do think it is more important that you hit on that pick. You have to. You have to hit on that, and especially your first-round pick. So, by that token, you know, you would, in theory, want a better pick. Um, and then there's all kinds of other stuff that goes with, with winning that is just separate from the pieces that you have. That is, it's great to win for young guys because it builds a culture. It shows that your coaching staff knows what they're doing. I've been, the, I think, the biggest winner of this whole first couple of weeks, if not, uh, you know, Jose Iglesias, has been Brandon Hyde because he has looked so good getting these guys to win. It's been incredibly impressive. So th that's a positive. These guys learn how to win. Sometimes it can be difficult for young guys to learn how to play together as a team and win. So there are all kinds of benefits there to winning. It's just do they outweigh the negatives of getting a worse draft pick, you know? And if it's not... You know, at, at what point? Because if it's, if it's the difference between the first and the fifth pick, 
or the second and the fifth pick, whatever, that minuscule difference. But what if it's the difference between a second, the second overall pick and the 18th overall pick? You know, there's a large gap there. So I think even this year, there's a pretty big gap between the second and the third overall pick because right now, looking at the prospects, at point, yeah. there, it's a pretty much consensus that there's two guys that are going to go one and two in whatever order. Most people think Kumar Rocker is going to go first overall, but then you've got Jack Leiter, who is probably going to go second overall, and if he doesn't go second, that's because he went first. Those are pretty much the top two guys, but even then, looking at the 2020 draft, Emerson Hancock was not a slam dunk to be the first overall pick, but he was slated by most to be the first overall pick. He dropped to six to the Mariners, so you never really know going into the draft who's going to be the top few guys, but again, we know that the goal of... It's been clear. The goal for these years has been a rebuild, but if you are consistently getting the worst record in the league even in rebuilding seasons, that means that maybe your coaching staff isn't doing a fantastic job. Maybe you haven't found any diamonds in the rough like you were hoping for. So, I again, I don't think you can find those diamonds in the rough and have a good coaching staff and have the first overall pick. Right. That's a good point. And and especially in this shortened season where all these guys are off to a hot start, and I I do think, you know, these guys are going to come back down to earth. Jose Iglesias is not going to hit 450. Uh, Hans Alberto might hit 344. Uh, yeah. But, you know, it's right now every single, not every single one, Chris Davis is still not hitting, uh, but almost every single guy is clicking and is living up to their potential, and it is great to see. Some of these guys are going to fall off. You know, it, it's it's unlikely that all of these guys, between a Santander, a Severino, a, uh, a Cisco, all these guys are going to, be good contributors down the line. They'll fall off at some point, and we'll see the the cream will rise. But we'll, it, right now it is enjoyable to watch and to get all these guys playing together too, where Hyde is getting them to play like a team is exciting. And just just to see these guys make good on these opportunities, like that's what that's what we always talked about last year was. Brandon Hyde said, all right, wide open bullpen conversation, you know, <laughs> competition. Yeah. If you pitch well, you can get a, you can be coming out of the bullpen in 50 games this year. Uh, so to see these guys make good on these opportunities is exciting. And not only is it fun to watch for this year, it's fun to think about the fact that in the next two or three years, when the Orioles start to call up the guys that everybody is really excited about on the prospect list, the Adley Rutschmans, Grayson Rodriguez, D.L. Hall, Ryan Mountcastle. When, once those guys are called up, you'll pair them with the guys yeah. that we're excited about right now. Yeah. Like Hanser Alberto, like Anthony Santander. And like you said, it's not a guarantee that these guys are going to stick around for the long term. But even if a few of them do, I mean, how fun is that? And that's, to, to have the guys that stuck it out during the rebuild years, yes. the guys that other teams just kind of cast away, and now the Orioles have found these good pieces to pair with their young stars. And that's even wave two, I think, in terms of prospects. Sometimes they like break it down by waves. Like The first wave of prospects that's going to hit is Keegan Aiken, who just arrived. Yep. And Dean Kramer's in that category. And Isaac Matson's in that category. And Ryan Mountcastle's in that category of guys that we're going to see in 2020 or 2021 at the latest. 
That's just the first wave. The second wave is Adley Rutschman, is Heston Kerstad, is D.L. Hall, the younger guys, the Grayson Rodriguez, the superstar potential talents that are going to come through. So the fact that we haven't even hit the first wave of prospects coming in and they are playing this well and they already have this many diamonds in the, dra- in the rough is, is, is Im- encouraging. Well, here's a, here's a question for you, Paul. Is it not safe to say, is it, yeah, is it safe to say that kind of the dog days of the rebuild are behind the no, Baltimore No, Orioles? it's not safe to say. And I, I don't, I don't, while we're talking about how great this start has been, there's a, an equally high chance that they go two and 15 the next 17 sure. games. So it, it, it is way too early, I think, to say that. Um, and I think, yeah, like I said, I think these guys are going to fall off. I don't think the Orioles are going to make the playoffs still. I'll, I'll be honest. I, I, they just have so much in their way. 538 right now, that statistical website, has them at a 10% chance to make the playoffs, which is higher than it was, but it's still not good. So the dog days, are we are still in the first stage of this thing. We can't get caught up, and, and Michael Elias will not get caught up in this. He will not be, uh, he's not going to be adding pieces at the deadline. If anything, he's going to be trading away pieces. So he's not going to get caught up in this. I don't think we should get all that caught up in it. I think the more encouraging thing is not the winning of the games so much, although that is encouraging for all the reasons I listed. The most encouraging part of this is seeing individual performances from the young guys or middle-tier guys. Right, and if a bunch of baseball players on your baseball team are playing well, you're going to win some baseball games. This is true. And I would agree. (laughs) I would agree that I don't think the dog days of the rebuild are over, but the prospects are coming. Yes. And they are, the first wave, like you said, is going to be here, and it's going to be here shortly, and it's already happening. Absolutely. And then the second wave, in theory, is supposed to be even better than the first right all exciting stuff and that was a little very much inside baseball in terms of you know the front office and that kind of stuff so next podcast we'll uh we'll get back to more baseball actual on the field swinging bats throwing baseballs now you're the one saying baseball that kind of stuff i am i can't stop saying baseball uh but in the meantime steve molesky earlier up earlier on i caught up with him uh to discuss the site and buoy his conversations with gary kendall and the coaching staff there, all exciting stuff. MassInSports.com, Steve Molesky, check it out. MassInSports.com, Steve Molesky joins the podcast. Steve, thanks so much for hopping on. You got it, Paul. So, Steve, you did an interview recently with Gary Kendall, who, of course, is the Norfolk Tides manager, but he has been spending his current time at the alternate site in Bowie. And I think from a fan's perspective, it's tough to tell exactly what goes on on a day-to-day basis there because there are no cameras, no media allowed in the site at Bowie. What did you learn from Gary about how they're running camp at the alternate site? You know, he's pretty thrilled with it. And, Paul, this first of all, this uh, Gary Kendall is a guy I think a lot of fans know and have heard about. I mean, he's a Baltimore native. This is his 21st season in the Oriole organization. And, you know, he bleeds orange and black, man. There's few people who want to see the Orioles win the World Series more than Gary. And I've, I've known him for many, many years. I've talked to him in many different affiliates. And I love talking to Kendall. I mean, one of the things I miss about this season is going to Bowie or Norfolk or wherever and sit with him. But <clears throat> it's going great down there. they got a mix of young guys, as we know, Adley and Grayson and D.L. Hall and that group with veteran guys who are probably more 
concerned with, I got to be ready if I get that call tomorrow. Um, and he told me the chemistry has been great in that older guys like Adilson Herrera or Ramon or Arias, uh, Taylor Davis is a catcher down there who's been around for a while. They're very helpful of the younger guys, which is really unselfish because they might be taking your job one day. You know how that is in baseball. Um, but they really have a com- camaraderie and they can't play an outside team. So they got to do the best they can playing each other. Uh, and they're really heavily using the technology, even to the point sometimes you put it on the scoreboard during their simulated games or inter-squad games. So they do a lot of targeted work early before the game. Then they play either a three to six inning game, depending upon how many innings are available. They might be holding some pitchers back in case something's going on in Baltimore. So they're heavily coordinated with the major league team, almost to the point sometimes they're duplicating times and, you know, report times and, and pregame work. And so uh, it's uh, the Orioles, uh, they put a lot of thought into this. It's clear. And they have a bunch of older veteran coaches there. And they have some of their new school coaches who are very versed in analytics and data and, and marrying the two, the on-field coaching with the data and the analytics. So um, they're really targeting, you know, guys that need to get targeted development like Adley are, guys who need to be ready. They might get called over getting that. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine the kind of challenges that uh, these coaches and players are facing, given the fact that they're doing all of this in a minor league stadium. You mentioned the technology and being able to harness that while not getting access to major league clubhouses or you know major league facilities. Has that been a challenge for them that you have learned from them, or or are they the fact maybe the fact that they don't have fans in the stands? Does that help them kind of? Uh, maybe make use of the space better than they might be otherwise. It sounds like they are using the space really well. Cause in addition to Kendall, I've interviewed a couple of players who talk about the weight rooms on the concourse. And there are things that uh, you and I media can't go over fans can't go over, but if we could, it probably would look very different. And we have to keep in mind, Paul, that the same medical protocols apply. They're getting tested as much as the, the active Oriole players on the roster are because they're part of the 60 if you're on that 60, you know, the protocols are extensive for you, too, where we with the alternate side of the major league team. So but I think what they like is if this, if this was August in a normal season, some guys might skip pregame hitting because, you know, it's the dog days. You played 100 games and you're backing off pregame work. But now they can really target pregame work. And if someone wants to get 10 at bats today, they can. If they want someone to hit today only off a lefty, they can. If they want someone to play first base and like Mountcastle take some balls at first base to stay sharp there, they can spend a day going hard at that. So uh, really an opportunity to target. And then, like I said, they can match coaches, the players, they have all the technology. They're reviewing that daily. So um, it sounds like there's a good work day going on at Bowie. Yeah, I feel like that's a must just because of the differences in age, the differences in experience level. But if fans could be there, if media could be there, it would be awesome just to get a glimpse of Grayson Rodriguez throwing to Adley Rutschman. You know, these kind of glimpses into the future that we're used to seeing at minor league ballparks. But now it's all happening and it's kind of overlapping with some major league talents as well. Uh, But the group that they have there, I mean, you mentioned some of the top prospects in D.L. Hall and Grayson Rodriguez and Adley Rutschman. Do you think that they're able to get some kind of positive development and experience from this so that this is not a wasted year for them and maybe you know they, they can start the 2021 spring training or season 
little bit higher than they might have if they had just taken the year off, so to speak? Quite possibly they can. Um, at a minimum, they're going to get a baseline of innings. It's not going to be probably anything what they would have in a rotation all year in the minor leagues, but it's going to be something and it's going to be innings against guys who have played in the big leagues and guys who would be at the higher minors. So, I mean, it, it's, it'll be quality. Um, and so I'm sure they're, they're working hard on that and making sure that going into 21, if, if we have the full year, like we're used to, that they'll have a baseline. They won't have to just drop the pitching, you know, 80 innings. Um, so they got to think about that. And I'm sure they are. Uh, plus, like I said, the targeted work. I mean, again, uh, Grayson might have been one of 15 or 14 pitchers that Frederick, and now it's a little – it's a similar number there, but they've got more pitching coaches. They've got Justin Ramsey and Kenny Steenstra, and then they've got the technology guys. So i got to believe it's be, it's a great experience for them, unlike anything they've been through, but they're making the best of it, and, they're, and, and in some respects they're thriving under this situation. Absolutely. Well, one guy there that uh, has drawn quite a lot of attention, of course, has been Ryan Mountcastle. Fans have been clamoring for him to be called up to the Major League team at some point, and now we are a couple weeks into the season. We still haven't seen him yet. We know that Brandon Hyde and Michael Elias have said we want to make sure he's ready before he gets the call up, and we don't want to bring him up as a designated hitter. But do you think that he will get his call up at some point uh, maybe over the next couple weeks before we get into September? Because it does sound like it is coming this season. And if he does get that call up, where do you think they'll stick him? I I think it is coming. And I have no inside information. No one whispered in my ear or anything, uh, you know, wait for him in a week or something. But, you know, we're about 25% into this thing. So I don't think they want him to only get 10 games at the end. I, I can't imagine that. And my guess would be, sooner than later but does that mean you know this Philly series does that mean a week I don't know but I can't imagine it's too much longer and Paul I look at the roster and I see three outfielders and really the fourth outfielder right now is Velazquez who they like out there they haven't put him out there but they could and so they sent DJ and Bowens out so I mean they're a little thin on outfielders not that Ryan would be called up to be the fourth outfielder but he could come up and then Velazquez could be the fifth, you know, if they made that move, they added him to the current outfield group. And I think fans should anticipate the potential Mountcastle and left Hayes and center Santander and right. That's three mid 20 age outfielders who could be here a long time who all bring a lot to the table. I mean, that would be fun to watch. And Kendall told me, I said, could you know, could Ryan come up and hold his own in left field today? And he said he could, and again, you know, his coach is not going to say, nah, we, he's nowhere near ready to do that. But I do think Gary's encouraged because he saw him last year when they moved him out there in Norfolk. Um, and again, that's another thing they can target with Ryan specific. And they're not just hitting him lazy fly balls. They're hitting them shots that he would have to play in the game, off the wall, in the gap. Here's a bloop. You know, they're testing him on things that he might see if next time he's in a major league game the first time. So um, uh, I think – we're getting close. It just has that feel to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One guy we have seen, uh, he has not pitched in a game yet, but he did get called up from Bowie would be Keegan Aiken, the lefty, one of the more highly touted uh, pitching prospects in the Orioles system for several years now. He was the O's co-minor league pitcher of the year a couple years ago. You've covered him uh, throughout his time in the minor leagues, and he's gotten the call up. We're waiting for him to make his major league debut, which will probably happen soon. But what can fans expect from a Keegan Aiken once he does make that debut? 
Well, a couple of years ago when he was pitcher of the year, co-pitcher of the year at Bowie for the entire season, he was throwing, he's told us, 80% fastballs. And if you have the best fastball in the game, that's too many. <clears throat> you know, a lot of the top pitchers now throw less than 50. So the Orioles and Keegan realized together, we got to work on that percentage and you have to become more proficient, comfortable, and confident in your other pitches, which for him is a slider and a changeup. So last year at Norfolk, they said, dude, we, you got to throw an OO changeup. You got it on one and on three and one. That can't always be a fastball. And they, and they forced him and he appreciated it. He told me uh, to do that. And so in his numbers, his walk rate went up, but Chris Holt told me, I don't worry about that because he was doing exactly what we needed him to do. And he's a better pitcher because of it. So when he gets to the big leagues, if he gets the start at some point, we will have to watch walk rate. That's always been a little iffy for him, but he's got a high spin rate fastball. They say that's 92, 94 touches more. And the secondaries really did come a long way last year, particularly the changeup, I believe. And I, when I saw him in spring, I thought he was a pretty complete looking pitcher. Uh, it was a small sample, of course, of Florida, a few games. <clears throat> and he had a couple big hits he gave up that hurt his lines, but I thought he looked just about ready. And so we're all curious to see what it's going to look like. Yes, we are. Steve, awesome insight as always. Thanks so much for hopping on the podcast. And, of course, if you aren't reading everything that he has out there, you ought to on MassInSports.com and give him a follow at Steve on Twitter as well. Steve, thanks again. And, and of course, you got to plug that post-game show on 105.7 The Fan as well before you get out of here. Hey, I love doing that, Paul. You know me, man. I could talk about the Orioles at midnight, and I have many times this year, uh, because the games start 7.30. You might not get on until 11 or something. But we've got a late-night show about a half hour after the last uh, pitch on 105.7 The Fan. We host uh, Extra Innings. It's an hour post-game call-in show. We play post-game interviews. We analyze the game. We talk to fans. We have a lot of fun. So uh, join in some night. I hope fans uh, – tune in on the fan uh, tonight or whenever they can absolutely it, it is an awesome show as well so would definitely give my endorsement to it as well steve thanks so much for hopping on we uh, can't wait to talk to you soon you got it paul thanks